Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. You mind coming through okay? You can hear all right. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It is just a huge joy to be here and experiencing. People were asking earlier, what have you noticed about California? We've traveled a bit in America, um, but I spent a summer in DC and then I've been around various places. But uh, yeah, we just, it's been really, really great these last, there's obviously more sunshine and uh, probably more, um, I don't know, am I allowed to say more weed than there is in Britain? That's definitely true. Um, and fewer bikes um, and, like, and fewer places to walk, but just beautiful afternoon we had today and just so enjoyed being with you and, and just being with people who I think beginning to feel like I know. There's quite a lot of you now I've met on multiple occasions in different countries, actually. It's been really lovely. Earlier on, I was offered honey in my tea as if that was something that English people did because English people drink tea. And when I said no, um, the sister in question said to me, do you have bees in England? And I just thought it was just the most magnificent question. And, you know, I, I feel like it's, can you tell who it was that asked that question? It's like, uh, it was just brilliant. Um, it's a little bit like when they say, oh, so you're from England. Do you know the queen or the, do you know the king? That kind of thing. But it was a sort of next level from that. No, but it's, it's just been uh, wonderful to be with you. And uh, yeah, as Alan said, we're going to cover a whole lot, lot of different themes during the course of these sessions. But I want to start by talking about the Bible and the authority of scripture. But I want to do it by starting, effectively inverting the way in which we often think about the relationship between the Bible and Jesus. Um, I think what often happens is because people obviously encounter Jesus through reading scripture, I think what, what people can conclude is that you begin with an authoritative book from which you then infer an authoritative person. So you have the relationship between the book and the person is that the book reveals divine truth and as a result, you end up with a, you encounter Jesus, who is an authoritative person. And in a sense, can, if we're not careful in the way we frame it, can imply that Jesus derives his authority from the Bible, rather than the Bible deriving its authority from Jesus, which is, I think, a better way of framing it. In fact, the way that we sometimes frame it is more like the way Muslims would frame it. So for if you're a Muslim, you believe that the gift of God to the world, the final revelation of God's word, was in a book, and then there's a man who is a witness to the book which is Muhammad. That's how Muslims do it. Christians don't think that way around at all. Christians think, no, in the, in the past, God spoke to his people with the prophets and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. And the son is the ultimate authority, the final and definitive revelation of God. And the book effectively derives its authority from him, not the other way around. Now, that's a puzzle because, of course, we only know who Jesus is from reading the book. Um, but actually, when we come to faith in Christ, what happens is we our understanding of what this book is changes. And instead of it being a list of human reflections on religious experience, we come to see it as the authoritative word of God, because that's how Jesus treated it. And so your, your understanding of the book of Proverbs or mine or the book of Leviticus or the book of Chronicles derives its power from the fact that Jesus treated it as scripture. And so in a sense, we start with Jesus and then get to the authority of Scripture rather than starting with Scripture and getting to the authority of Jesus. Now, I find that quite important because I find particularly, Alan alluded already to, you know, people who are asking understandably in our cultural moment deep questions about whether or not Christianity really holds up at all, even those who've many, often those who've grown up in the faith. And uh, I think when that happens, it's, it's just it's important that if, if we simply just sort of go, right, okay, the, the final line of defense is the Bible and we retreat to the word, what happens is we, we effectively say, well, the, the truth of Christianity rises or falls with this. This is my highest court of appeal. 
And actually, what often appeals to people and what often can find, people find compelling about Christianity ultimately is not the Bible. Ultimately, it's the person of the Lord Jesus, which they encounter in the Bible. But Jesus effectively is what drew them to Christianity in the first place and what they find most attractive about Christianity. And so as they begin to think, you say, okay, leave, let's put a pin in your doctrine of scripture for a moment. What do we think about Jesus? Let's talk about him. And as we begin to understand Jesus and say, right, now let's look at what he did and how he spoke and how he regarded the word of God as revealed in the world. And let's understand what, if we were had to start with Jesus and then get a doctrine of scripture, how might we do it? What does Jesus say about the Bible? What does he do? And so I want to put seven things in front of you and then just walk through them really. Ways in which we get our doctrine of scripture from Jesus rather than, so have we got those, we got a, a slides floating around. Um, oh, they're, oh, they're all laid out one at a time. Oh, this is excellent. So the reveal, it's like each one is a new level of wonder or something, seven caverns of revelation or something. Um, so I, I want to walk through the things that Jesus says and does. It put give us our theology of scripture. So rather than saying, well, the, the Bible is obviously inspired and authoritative, and here's lots of texts in the Psalms that show it is. I find it can be helpful to go to the person of Jesus and say, how did he think about what this book is? And we will come on to the question of what's in the book, because obviously the New Testament hadn't been written yet when he's saying these things. And I think the, the place I often start, and I think it's just a great one to start, is, is this sort of, this is how to do spiritual warfare like Jesus is the, the clash over the authority of Scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. We all know the devil comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. I need a, I need a, there's a there must be a young guy here who doesn't mind being pushed around. That, occasionally that happens in a, in a room like this. It's funny, they're already, so somebody's pointing at JD, which seems, I, I don't even, maybe, yeah, this guy here? The stone, were you the stone crew? Yeah, okay. You want to come on out, okay? So spiritual, <laughs> spiritual warfare. Three ways of spiritual warfare in the Bible. Jesus embodies the third one, okay? The first means of spiritual, you're a bigger, stronger guy than me. Most, most people are, frankly, so it's fine. Um, but you're the devil. I'm the, I'm the Christian. <laughs> and, I have, and I have three ways of responding to spiritual attack. The first is that I'm told, told to resist the devil, right? So you're coming, you're, you're attacking me, okay? And I'm, yeah, you can do, you can be a bit more physical and aggressive than that. That's good. Okay. I'm told to resist. Okay. That, that's a, I've got to try and stand my ground. I've got to resist him. The second thing is he said, you've got to flee from the devil. And so he's just going to go for me and I have to just literally run away. Unfortunately, yeah, he doesn't have the reflexes. So that's fine. But, but the third one and the one that Jesus models in this one is the devil just comes for him and he's like, and lit, it takes the word and it's like the original Bible bashing story that the devil comes and says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he just says, it's written. It's written. He said, okay, well, what about this? We take you up to the high mountain, look at all this. It is written. And of course, Satan tries to do the same to him. He says, oh, I can see how this spiritual warfare game is going. Maybe I can proof text you from Psalm 91, which obviously some of our people probably still do. So if you, you, you make the most high your dwelling, you'll no harm will befall you. He'll make sure that his angels surround you. You won't even strike your foot on a stone. But Jesus knows the word well enough and says, no, it is written. It's also written. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. That's what you had to do. Thank you very much, sir. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a form. Now, Jesus, it only works because Jesus is appealing to the authority of Scripture as if the fact that it's written in here is the end of the conversation. So if you start with the person of the Lord Jesus and then say, how did this man, based on the, all the historical records we have of him, 
How did he regard God's word as having been given to us? And did he think it was true or not? Say, actually, the, the first thing you'd notice is when he is a, afflicted by the devil, he stands simply on the fact that revelation has been given. And because it's been written, it is true. And it's not just, it's not just true in a factual sense. It's morally binding. It's authoritative for life. It means you don't do anything that's against what's written in here. And even when the devil plays the hermeneutical game, Jesus is like, we're not having this because it's also written this other thing, which effectively trumps that thing you're trying to get me to believe. And so the authority of scripture functions in that sense for Jesus is a, a sort of just foundational assumption, which happens again and again in the gospels. People regularly come to him and say, well, why, why can't, why won't you do this? Or what are you going to go and do that for? Or, hey, hey, teacher, here's an interesting problem. And he says, haven't, haven't you read? It is written in the scriptures. Like end of, end of conversation, really. If you haven't realized that the fact that it's written means you must do it and it's true, you've misunderstood what this is. I don't know anybody in the modern world, no sort of, you know, 11 point inerrantist um, fundamentalist Bible preacher who, who operates with a higher functional authority of the word of God than Jesus does. Even, even though I started by saying, I think we have to start with Jesus and get to scripture. But as soon as you do that, you find him talking like this. You find this, it is written becomes the sort of the, the final court of appeal when it comes to what you and I should do or think in the world. And I actually think that each of those three encounters with the devil reveal something slightly different about the authority of Scripture and how it works. He says, the, the devil says, Turn the, command the stones to become bread. And he says, no, for it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is to say that Scripture is enough. Right? This, is what, this, is what you, this is what you need to sustain you. Now you go with a day without bread, you can, you can live with that. You go without the word of God, you flounder, you die for lack of revelation. Then the devil comes and says, well, why don't you do this? Because it's written, you won't strike his foot against a stone. And at the same point, same time, then Jesus says, yeah, okay, but it is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Satan, your reading of that text is wrong if it leads to a misreading of this text. The scripture is coherent. It joins up. So obviously the Psalm 91 trump card that you're trying to play, which is you can basically do anything stupid. You can jump off a very tall building and trust the promise of Psalm 91, you won't hurt yourself. Jesus says, well, if, he doesn't quite say this, but I think the subtext is, yeah, but if that were true, I would spend my life testing God. And the word of God says, you mustn't do that. So obviously your reading of Psalm 91 is wrong because it is also written. And then so that effectively scripture is enough, scripture is coherent. And then in the final one, of course, you just, I will give you all of this if you'll bow down and worship me. And it says, no, no we're, we're, <laughs> no, we're not going there. It is written, the Lord your God alone you will serve. Scripture is authoritative. It binds my conscience and my life. So Jesus starts with, a, a, I say, the first encounter we see really with him working through the Bible is a, a very, very high view of the authority of Scripture. Now, that's probably obvious if you read the, the, read the Gospels through. Jesus is over and over again emphasizing it. But I think we have a much deeper and richer uh, theology of Scripture than that um, from Jesus' own lips. And I think the second one to draw out, which I touched on in my, if the Southlands folk will have heard me talk a little bit like this on Sunday, but I want to go into it a bit more, is uh, on the inspiration of Scripture. So Matthew 22, verse 43 would be uh, it's, it's a great text to go to for this. It's where they're, they're debating and, you know, Jesus has fielded lots of questions and then he finally comes out, okay, I'll ask you one. Um, so who do you think the Christ is? Oh, well, he's the son of David. Okay, great. So how is it then that David, by the Spirit, says and calls him Lord? So how can he be his son? 
You know the story. How can it be that David, by the Spirit, says the idea that for Jesus, the way the Bible is written is that a human being, David, writes something by the Spirit, and that the result is the written text of Scripture. So this book is written by human beings, by the divine one, right? It's written by David, by the Spirit. And that's effectively the doctrine of divine inspiration, isn't it? That actually what is written in the text comes not just from the human author, but from the divine spirit speaking through him. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, divine inspiration isn't in the, it's not in the creeds. It's something we can take or leave. Actually, I think it very much is in the creeds. It speaks about the Holy Spirit being the one who spoke by the prophets. Like the idea that, yes, there, this is actually a foundational Christian confession, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophetic and writings and, of course, the law, and what happens in the story where Jesus is debating with them describes that David, the, the speech, the text of Scripture, is written by David by the Spirit or in the Spirit and through what the Spirit is doing. And the illustration I used on Sunday, which I, I love for this, is the idea of uh, the way in which um, musical instruments make sound. And so, yeah, I don't, probably not these particular ones because these are not acoustic, but, uh, but, the, but um, an acoustic or a breath-laden musical instrument, a woodwind instrument or a brass instrument makes sound. So you take something like a saxophone and you say that the way in which you get notes out of that is that the, the author, the, the musician, the Louis Armstrong person, right, fills his cheeks with air and then blows the air into the saxophone. And out comes this beautiful, rich sound, and it fills the room. And you think, okay, so how has that sound been made? Has it been made by Louis or by saxophone? And obviously, it's a, it's a stupid framing of the question because it's clearly both. It's, it's Louis, it's effectively Louis has done it by means of or using the saxophone as his means of making the noise. And, and in that sense, the saxophone is inspired. It's literally in breath, it's inspirited by air that's come out of. The person who's ultimately responsible for the sound, Louis Armstrong or God, and it's come through this human instrument, this, this metal instrument or this person, and it, as a result, the sound has come out into the room and you can hear it, and it's very much a, a, a both and of, the, the, if, you, if you like, the, the musician and the instrument or God and the human instrument he chooses to use, which in this case is David. Now, that helps us because what I, I often say, I like, you know, riffing off Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. I like to say, Scripture is true like jazz. That what happens is that the Bible is filled with different, if you like, one author who is playing through multiple musical instruments. And they sound different from each other, and sometimes they clash. And sometimes jazz musicians do that, and sometimes they will hold clashes from multiple bars. I don't even know, many of you know more about this than me, but they would hold a clash from multiple bars. It would go on for ages, and you think, where is this going to resolve? Because actually that just sounds out of step with this other note that I've read. And, and some of you find that as you're reading the Bible. You find, hang on, that, that thread, even sometimes in the same book, that thread of Proverbs doesn't match with that thread of Proverbs. This one seems to imply, you know, if you, or if you read Job alongside Proverbs, you think, wow, do the wicked prosper? Do the righteous suffer? Well, if you read this book, no, not really. Here's principles for life. And basically, if you do good things, you'll be blessed. And then in this book, it's all about a man who did very good things and then was horribly cursed. And how does that work? And the clash is left. And you're like all the way through for hundreds of years going, how does that get resolved until in the Lord Jesus? Ultimately, you see that's how these two different musical instruments are playing notes that 
are intended not to resolve instantly, to make you think sometimes, and to hold you through the rest of the piece until in Jesus you find resolution. And that actually the different biblical authors are intended to bring out different notes of God's redemptive music in that sense. So you, you'd actually, you'd read some and you think, that's an important note without which I wouldn't be able to understand biblical revelation, but that couldn't have been written by this other person whose experience is so different. And there are maybe may, even major and minor instruments in that, in the sort of, that God will, you know, like, again, a band leader, Louis Armstrong, no doubt, could. You'd play multiple, you'd play the flugelhorn, play the alto sax, play the tenor sax, play the trumpet, all these different instruments that you say, for, for this kind of sound, I want to play this one. I'm going to say that through David, and I'm going to say that through Moses, and I'm going to say that through Solomon, I'm going to say that in the book of Esther or the book of Ruth. And, and you, for some of the time, it's going to sound like it's clashing, and ultimately, it is going to resolve because there is one ultimate author playing through all of these different instruments to make different sounds as he wills. And Jesus' understanding of how Scripture is inspired works that way. Now, Jesus is, well, David, by the Spirit, the saxophone, by Louis Armstrong, produces this sound. That's where the breath comes from him, but the particular expression of it and the personality of it comes through the instrument that the artist was using. And that's why sometimes you find these really quirky, you know, funny things like where John is just going on about the fact that he ran the running race to the tomb. You're like, I, this is just, you've made this a lot much larger part of the story than I would have. It's like, then the other one, the disciple who got to the tomb first, and he just keeps going back to it. It's like, yeah, I'm faster than Peter. Like, why is that such a big part of this story? But of course, you get these personal textures, textures to the story. But ultimately, there's one person breathing and producing the sound that he wants. And so you have a, uh, and in the Jesus' doctrine, effectively, of the inspiration of Scripture. It is by the Spirit that these words are spoken. Third one in John chapter 10, uh, where you have what I call the unbreakability of Scripture. So which is, this is where Jesus is debating again with his opponents who are saying, you've, you've just got this wrong. You, we are furious with you because you made yourself God. And he then goes to this very obscure passage in the Psalms, and, and, but makes this interesting comment. He said, if it's said in the Scriptures... I said, you are God's. And then he says, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Then what are you angry with me for? But I'm saying I'm a God. Like, you're, by your own standard, you ought not to do that because you believe, as I do, that the scriptures cannot be broken. That idea of the breakability of the Bible, that the, the Bible is, is it something that can be, the word luo, it's just that it can be freed, loosened, broken, um, similar to the word he uses in Matthew when he says in, in Matthew 5, I haven't come to break. Cataluo. So, but it's basically an intense form of the same verb. I haven't come to break the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So again, the idea that, that people can take an attitude that the Bible can be, it can be broken. It, this revelation can be snapped up into pieces. Some of it might be true. Some of it might not be true. Jesus is like, no, no, no. It says in the word this, and the scriptures can't be broken. And on that basis, your challenge against me is obviously wrong. You, it can't stand because this is obviously, this is unbreakable. Like, why would you say that? And again, it's just, I find it can be helpful for people who, to, to take people to Jesus first. Because actually, the, you know, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, which I totally believe, it, but when we, we understand the Bible right, obviously if you get the Bible wrong, it, all sorts of bad things might, Im, implied, might be implied, but that the idea that Scripture is unbreakable, the idea that Scripture is without mistakes, I really treasure that doctrine, but it's usually not the first thing that someone who's going, I'm really struggling with, 
all sorts of problems with my understanding of the church and of Christian history, it's not normally the most reassuring thing to hear. You say, okay, let's just leave that to one side. Come to Jesus. Let's encounter him. Let's talk about him. And then if somebody's ready, you then say, how are we going to do right? How are we going to understand how Jesus speaks to the world? What Jesus really wants from you or for me? How are we going to do that? And then we go, let's look at the way Jesus approached the Bible. What did he say about it? And he, he said things like this. He says, the scriptures can't be broken. You, you can't start a debate about what God would have you do from the assumption that scripture's sometimes right and sometimes wrong. It's just not the case. But you, it's like, that's not my starting point, effectively. It's a conclusion I'm drawing from the way Jesus speaks about what the Bible is and how it works. You've got seven altogether. This is the third one. The fourth one, the coherence of Scripture, which is also in Matthew 22. There's a lot of debate about the Bible in Matthew 22, and this is one of the silliest thought experiments that is probably in history, isn't it? Hey, this guy, you know, this, this woman, she had seven husbands, and they all died, so which ones are you going to be married to? Ha! See, resurrection's stupid, isn't it? That's really where the Sadducees are going with the argument. And Jesus' answer, which we've often heard, but is, is very, it's beautifully uh, just a, a lovely cadence to it is like you are in error because you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. That's your problem. You, you don't understand how coherent the whole Bible is. So you think that if you find a problem text here, it will sink the entire enterprise. It's because you just don't understand what the Bible is and how well structured it is. You, you've read scripture, O Sadducees, so clumsily and shallowly that you haven't noticed how doctrines like resurrection do not suddenly appear in the book of Daniel like you think they do. But that's the Sadducees' point, right? They're like, we, we read the Torah, the first five books. They don't say anything about resurrection. It's not until much later that Isaiah and Daniel start talking about resurrection. And Jesus is going, you just don't know the Bible. Because if you go back to the burning bush, you, go, you see Jesus in the passage about the bush. You see that God reveals himself and describes, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. You are badly mistaken. You just haven't read the book properly. And you have, because you haven't read it properly, you've read it at a superficial level, like a, 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 like a YouTuber producing videos that, here's another takedown. Here we go, the final. You've read it like that. You've read it like, ha, I've got a, 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 a trump card argument here. And you haven't realized that there is a coherence to this text that is far greater than you've seen. And because you think you don't realize that they're all the bits of this book are given by the same God. Even in spite of the, the clashes we, we touched on, which of course there are plenty of, and we have to wait for many of them to resolve. But you just, you're not reading it properly. You don't understand the power of God to raise the dead, but nor do you understand the scriptures. You don't seem to understand how they function. And there's lots of examples of that that you get today. The sort of Marcionism is the name we use for the, the sort of the old, very old heresy, really, that the Old Testament God is angry and vindictive and the New Testament God is lovely and fluffy. And it's a way of playing off the two against one another. And you get a similar version with people who say, oh, well, I, yeah, I, I really like the red letters. I mean, by the way, if your Bible has red letters, that's, that's, I'm, I don't, I'm not anti that. Mine doesn't personally. But if you, that, that can help people. I'm not talking about the Bible itself. But some people are like that. They say, no, I, I elevate the things Jesus said over and against the things that are said in other colors in the Bible. And as a result, you see, these are, that, that's, the, the, that's the Christianity I like. And often, of course, what people don't notice is, yeah, but 
what he says in the red letters validates the black ones. And some of the things in the red, if you read through, you get to Revelation and you see the red letters in there, some of those things are pretty, <laughs> they're not on most progressive people's wish lists as sort of things that you would like Jesus to say. Because what they, I think what they think they're doing is they're going, oh, Jesus only really said, you just got to include everybody. I was like, yeah, you read what he actually says and you'll find a lot of things that pick up on stories in the black letters as if they are both true and actually quite challenging to you. And he ups the ante on many of them. Um, some of you, I, have you got the, can you put the clown face thing up? This is actually, um, this is made by my friend, Derek Rishmawi, whose sister is in one of our churches here, I think. And he, he, he lives around here, but I just thought it was really fun. So it's the clown sort of gradual clown face development of this. It's like, just read, if Jesus is God's word, the Bible is not. So that's step one. You see this online a lot. Secondly, we should use Jesus to criticize the Bible. It's the next step. Then the next step is we may even have to criticize the Bible's presentation of Jesus in light of the spirit of Jesus. Then the final one is I determine which texts in the Gospels demonstrate the true spirit of Jesus. Which is like, but this is how the argument sometimes goes. You've got Jesus here, the red letters, and then you've got all the rest of the Bible, the black letters. But what really ultimately it boils down to is I read the Gospels and I go, that story, that text, that phrase, that represents the real Jesus. The other bits in the red letters don't really, and therefore we can throw out all the black letters. I tend to do it like a fr my friend and a, a former elder in my church who just said someone came up to him and said, do you know, Pastor, I've got a Bible with all of the words of Jesus in red. And he says, that's great. I've got a Bible with all the words of God in black. I just quite like it as a sort of slightly silly way of making the point, but I think that's at the heart of it. And it happens a lot. If we just go back to the other, the other holding site, the number four, it happens a lot with um, the way that people even think about the fulfillment of the law. The, the sense of that the coherence of scripture is often difficult for people because they will see Jesus as doing something totally different. And actually we have to teach people well, so they, to show them how this story is a fulfillment of this in the law. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to act as if somehow what Jesus is saying is radically new when in fact Jesus explicitly denies that it is and says, I haven't come to do anything completely new. I've just come to fulfill this story that's been going on for thousands of years. Um, a friend of mine who leads a church in South London, I, I, I loved it. It was a good story. He said, um, you wouldn't know this name, but there's a guy on, on British TV who's sort of a kind of classic older generation, quite left-leaning journalist guy who wears loud ties. His name is Jon Snow, and he did a documentary about what people thought the Ten Commandments today ought to be. Um, but he, my friend Simon started the story, said, I was watching TV the other day, and I threw an orange at Jon Snow. I was like, oh, wow, you threw an orange at the television. Why was that? And he tells this story and says, because Jon Snow did this thing about what would you think the Ten Commandments today should be? And he interviews all of these people, and he comes up and says, if we were to do the Ten Commandments today, we would, the, basically the main answer people gave was, you should do to others as they do to you. And so Simon said, at that point, I just unleashed my orange at the television set, because not only have you taken something that is explicitly from the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, it's also the one commandment that Jesus said sums up all the 10 commandments. It's like, how could you possibly think that was a new insight when it's actually in the New Testament that that is the, on, the thing on which hangs all the law and the prophets? That's a silly example, but people do that actually a lot. They don't realize how coherent scripture is. And so they do. They get stuck in the weeds about shellfish and sexuality and all kinds of pig, you know, pigskin and all that sort of stuff. But it just takes a little bit of reading, a little bit of thought and reflection on the whole Christian tradition to see this is how 
this book is coherent. And obviously we can talk more about the specifics if it, if it would help, but there are things, some of the things Jesus says underline the most lurid and difficult passages of the Old Testament. So I, I don't think there's a more morally problematic story in the Old Testament than the flood. I don't, I don't think. I, mean, I think it's hard, as in everyone dies bar eight, right? Whether you think the flood is a sort of a local thing or a global thing, almost by the by, everyone dies except for eight people. That's quite hard to defend morally, but Jesus just goes back to that story and goes, the coming of the Son of Man is going to be just like that. And it's also going to be just like the day when fire fell out of the sky and destroyed Sodom. Oh, and then Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, just like that. So it's like he's taking the, to use your phrase from earlier, the greatest hits, the most difficult bits of the Old Testament for moral people, modern people to get their heads around. And he's going, these things are all not only true, but they reflect what's going to happen at the coming of the Son of Man. So there's a coherence to scripture that Jesus just not only assumes, but teaches as he's talking about the Bible the whole time. Fifth one, Luke chapter 16 and verse 31, the sufficiency of Scripture. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And has this, you know, Jesus' stories, often you feel like you know what they're about. And then in the final couple of verses, there's a sting in the tail. And you suddenly think, oh, this has gone into a dark place. I didn't know that was what the story was about. The classic is the prodigal son, isn't it? Lovely story. Son goes away. Has a, leads a horrible life, comes back, but welcome back by his dad. Yay, everyone goes and has a party. Oh, then here's the older brother. And I want you to think about that. Oh, gosh, I wasn't expecting it to go there. Or, hey, guy goes out, has a huge banquet, invites everyone in. Oh, they all come in. It's lovely. Hey, why aren't you wearing the correct clothes? Get out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, gosh. That's, I really didn't think the story was going to do that. And this is one of those where you have the rich man and Lazarus. It's a classic reversal story. And, you know, the guy who's very rich in this life ends up poor and, you know, in the flames and the guy who's very poor ends up in, by Abraham's side. But then there's this moment where the rich guy is just crying out and saying, oh, send someone to my brothers to tell them. And Jesus is, and, and the answer Abraham gives, but Jesus is telling the stories. No, no, no. They've got Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. He says, no, 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 no. They don't believe Moses and the prophets, but they would believe it if someone rose from the dead. And Jesus, using Abraham as this sort of cipher in the story, but Jesus says, no, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if someone rises from the dead. Now, we rightly read that as a deeply prophetic, powerful picture of the rejection of Jesus himself, of course. But there's quite a deep truth underlying it, which is not only about his own resurrection. It's simply to say, if people don't believe this, no miracle will convince them. And it's kind of weird because many of us, I think, would say, I experienced miracles from God that led me to believe in this book, right? So I don't think Jesus is saying, if you don't start off in life assuming this is entirely true, you'll never get there. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if somebody on reading this book concludes that it's lies, they don't believe it, ultimately, even someone coming back to life will not convince them. And I found this, um, I was about 21, and I was at university, I was chatting to He's still one of the brightest guys I've ever met. My good, really good friend of mine, seeing him in a few weeks. Um, but we were, you know, this is 20 years ago. We are sort of back and forth. And I said, I was trying to, I just couldn't get my head around the fact that he wouldn't even entertain the idea of miracles happen. And so I said to him, so yeah, I'm deaf in my left ear as it happens. I have been since I was five, Com completely, the nerves have all died. And I said to him, so if I went to church and someone prayed to me for me to be healed and I was able to completely hear as a result of that, and then I came back to you, and I got you to, and you, I could convince you that it's happened. Would you believe? And he said, "Well, no, I wouldn't." 
And I said, why? And he said, because if I did, the entire way I look at the physical world would have to change. It's such an interesting comment. I think he's still in exactly that place. It's fascinating. But I remember thinking, oh yeah, that's, of course that's true. You're right. You can't just, you can't just go, wow, Andrew's completely healed. Another weird thing that sometimes happens. You can't do that. You have to say, I'm a materialist. I believe the only things in the world are material causes, are ultimately movement of atoms. I don't buy that there is anything spiritual in the world. And I would have to abandon that belief if even one person had experienced a miracle. So I can't accept that because all this far too much at stake. Now, I'm not saying that the rich man and his brothers are materialists. That would be anachronistic. But the same principles in play, isn't it? If you don't buy this, actually no miracle will convince you on its own. Scripture in that sense is sufficient. It's what is contained in the Bible is enough for people to come to faith. And I just love those stories. When you, you get people to share their conversion stories and people have got this, yes, I came and then I heard this and it was an amazing thing. And I was just, my heart, heart was broken. I realized what had happened. I burst into tears, ran to the front, saw a dozen miracles and yeah, left rejoicing. I have seen the light cartwheeling down the aisle. And then you get somebody else like our local vicar in Eastbourne who we asked him, so how did you become a Christian, Robert? And he said, uh, well, um, I became a Christian uh, by reading the Bible. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, and he said, yeah. And basically that's what happened. I was in a hotel room. I, there was a Bible there. I thought I should probably know what's in this. Quite seems to be quite an influential book. Started reading it. God totally changed his life. And he's been a vicar kind of for the last two decades. So many, there's probably people in this room where you say, that's basically what happened to me. I became a Christian by reading the Bible. There was there was a, there's efficiency for life and salvation and hope that came to me simply through the pages of this book that I didn't even understand it. I, so many people who've got stories of that nature, which is just so encouraging because there is a witness. You think this is such an ordinary thing to do, but one of the most evangelistic things you can do is to give somebody a copy of John's gospel or Mark's gospel and say, oh, so do you, does the name J. John mean anything to anyone here? So he's a, he's a well-known evangelist in Britain. He's, he's preached a an awful lot of people. He's a very well-known guy. But he became a Christian because he was standing in the lunch queue at university and a guy came up to him with a copy of John's gospel and said, read this. If you read it, I'll talk to you. If you don't read it, I'm sorry, I don't think I am going to have time to talk to you. And just walked off. Now, I'm not supposed to suggesting that as an evangelistic strategy, but that's what happened. He said, I was so captivated by the Jesus I found that I read John's gospel twice in one evening. It takes John's gospel, it takes you about two hours, 20 minutes to read John's gospel. He said, I read it twice in one evening. And he became a believer from nowhere and has been evangelizing for 30, I mean, I heard that story in 1988 and when he was still a relatively young curate. And now he's, yeah, I don't know how many people he's preaching. I just thought, it's just the, there is... If they, but they might believe Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, nothing will convince them. But if they do, there's, there's enough in here to break the power of sin in a person's life. Just as they read it, the light comes on and you realize it's absolutely amazing. So that's number five. Number six, the clarity of scripture. And this is one of the first online debates I got into with um, when I started blogging. I'd only been blogging a few weeks really and, um, and got into this with a, a Roman Catholic uh, academic at Notre Dame. His name is Christian Smith. He's, if you've heard of um, moralistic therapeutic deism, is that a term you've heard? That's a Christian Smith term anyway. And, so, and he's, he's, he, became a, he was an evangelical, became a Roman Catholic. And uh, he then wrote this book called The Bible Made Impossible, in which he said, basically, the Bible's not clear, because if it was, 
evangelicals will all agree about what it means, and they can't stop yelling at each other about what it means. Therefore, the Bible's not clear. So I'm still a Christian, he would say. I'm a Catholic. But I think you need the Pope and the councils to tell you what it means, because evangelicals are always arguing about it. And I wrote this piece in response, I guess, which I, to me, I've, I've, the argument still feels completely convincing to me. I hope it feels convincing to you. It's effectively that this kind of phenomenon happens a lot in the New Testament, that people, people disagree with each other and with Jesus about what the Bible means. Happens lots of times. But in the Gospels, Jesus never says, yeah, you're right, the book's unclear. He over and over and over again just says, actually, this is a problem with you. He does, and it's a problem with me. Like, I'm, them, I'm, this might well be I disagree with lots of people within a few miles of this building about some of the thing this book means. I think you can overplay the differences. I think that actually if we, we agree on far more than we disagree on. But admittedly, yeah, I do. I disagree with a bunch of people about what this book means. But Jesus always says, yeah, but that's because of you, Andrew. And that's because of all of you. And he, I'll just give you a bunch of examples. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3. You are making void the word of God because of your tradition. This is the Corbyn debates. So do, do we give the money to mom and dad or give the money to the temple? You're making void the word of God because of your tradition. And sometimes that's why people get, disagree with each other about the Bible. Matthew 16 verse 11. Do you still not perceive? How is it you fail to understand that I wasn't talking about bread? Sometimes people misread the Bible because they don't understand metaphors. They think, oh, yeah, this is to be taken literally. Like, no, 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 that's, that's not what I meant. I said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they go, oh, he's worried we didn't bring enough bread. Oh, you cretins, I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't talking about bread. I'm talking about false teaching. And they're oh, right, okay, oh, didn't get that. So there's, an, there's a failure of understanding of language and metaphor. Matthew 13 and 15, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed. Sometimes people disagree with each other about the Bible because their hearts have become dull. They're just a bit sluggish. Luke 24, 25 to 26. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You're misunderstanding the Bible because you're just quite slow. Basically, you're a bit dim. I mean, that's what he's saying on the road to Emmaus. Resurrection Jesus. Hey, welcome to the new creation. A little bit slow. <laughs> this is what it meant. Can you not see that? Matthew 16 and verse 23, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. That is, you might well understand what the Bible means, but you've, you've allowed the enemy to get in the way of what God is doing in the world because you're actually, Satan's occupying your heart for now, and that's giving you a problem. Luke 9, 45, they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it, and they were scared to ask him about it. Sometimes people disagree with each other about the Bible because they don't understand a certain saying, and then they're afraid to find out what the answer might be. John 8, 43, why don't you understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You don't want to hear what the Bible says. That's often why people don't argue about it. They go, well, I don't really want the answer to be that, because if the answer was that, I might have to do it. So I'd much rather the answer was this. Can, can we make it that? John 5, 39, it's the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. There's literally a dogged refusal to do what the Bible says because you don't want what it might cost. So that's, I don't know, how many examples was that? Eight, nine different examples of, and there's many others, of Jesus saying, you're right, you do disagree with me or with each other about what the word means. But that none of those is Jesus saying, you're right, this book is just a muddle. It's not clear. Each time he's saying, the scripture's not the problem, you're the problem. 
in all of these different ways. You might be dull. You might be slow. You might not want to believe it. You might have Satan might be occupying your heart on something. You might be point blank refusing. You might be might just be unable to understand how metaphors work. There's all sorts of reasons why, say, people might disagree with each other about baptism. Or any number of those things. It's an important thing. We disagree. But it's not ultimately because scripture's unclear. It's because of the problem with me and problem with people like me. And then finally, seventh one, the center of scripture. Or you could, if you wanted a fancy theological term, the, the Christocentricity of scripture. And this is in Luke 24 and many places. But this, this wonderful thing, again, the road to Emmaus, walking along. This is just after he's called them dull. He then says, okay, well, let's just do a Bible study and straighten you out. And then he began to explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that Jesus, for all of these things, which are effectively giving us doctrinal beliefs, I think, about Scripture, which is true, it's coherent, it's sufficient, it's unbreakable, it's all of these things. But ultimately, none of that helps us if we don't see that Jesus is the center of it and that what Scripture is trying to do is to point us back to him, which I know we know in theory, but often we still read it as if it's about us. I've married lots of people. I'm a pastor. You are, you, many of you are too. So you do a lot of weddings, right? So you find that there's pictures of you in all sorts of young couples' houses around your town community. Have you found that? You ever found yourself in a downstairs loo smiling at yourself? Has that, has that ever happened to anyone here? Is it only me? Occasionally, you find wedding pictures in the downstairs loo. And often, you find them on a mantelpiece or a bed. You're, just, you're in people's homes. You go, it's another picture of me. Everywhere I go, there's like, there's me. Hi, me. And it's just all over the place. And it's less true now. I do fewer weddings now. But when I was about 30, I was just, I was the young elder. So I did lots of weddings and I would regularly go around people's houses and find pictures of me. And of course, what, what you have to do at those points is realize if I look carefully at that picture, I'm a little fuzzy because the camera's zooming in on these two people. But if I wasn't wired to the fact that they were the point of the picture, I could say, look, there's me. There I am. And there I am. This downstairs loo, that sitting room, that mantelpiece. I'm everywhere. Now, some of us read the Bible like that, and it's fine to read the Bible and see ourselves so long as we don't think that somehow we are the center of that story. And said to say, in the center of the story is a married couple. In the center of the story is a groom who loves his bride. That's really what the story is about. And I'm also there. Praise God for being there. I love that I'm in it. I love that I can see myself in the story of Ruth or find myself in the story of the Exodus. I, that's praise God that I can, but that's not, let's not kid ourselves that that's really what's going on in that story. The story is about him, about his love and affection for his people. And Alan started this by referring to um, Tim Keller. And I, I'll finish in, in a way by uh, drawing on something he did, but just sort of digging into it even a little bit more. Many of you, if you know Keller's work, will have heard him do his Jesus is the true and better, all these different things. It's, it's, it was just when we around the fire pit, I said, that's probably the thing that's most shaped me. But I actually dug into it more and thought there's, there's even far more in Scripture, even in, even in Genesis. If or I had just limited myself to Genesis and said, how do I read the first book of the Bible as if it's about Jesus? And even some of these things are things that, you know, come from what Keller said, but many of them, you just have to, sometimes you go further in. One of them, I was thinking as we were just, you were introduced to the meeting and um, Josh was leading us out in song, I was, this one of these images, I thought, I've never thought about that in worship before. But Jesus is not just, I mean, Jesus is the true and better Adam, right? He, obviously, all the human race die in Adam, all the human race come to life in Christ. Jesus is the true and better Eve. 
the mother of all living, the one from whom life comes. The, the person who at the start of the story is simply called the woman, but then as soon as she gets the promise that the snake crusher is coming through her, she gets her name changed to Chava, life giver, basically. And Jesus is the fountainhead of the new life that comes. He's the true and better Eve. He's true and better Abel because his blood speaks a better word. Abel's blood said there must be vengeance on the fact that I've died. And Jesus' blood cries out a better word. It says, there must be forgiveness because I've died. It's the first death of the old world and the first death of the new one. And as a result, a completely different message is being preached. Jesus is the true and better Noah who brings salvation through judgment and baptism. He brings eight people and says, come into this, come into this wooden thing and you'll find freedom as the entire world is covered in watery judgment. You will then come through the waters out the other side into a new world in which you receive a promise, a rainbow that says, I'm never going to leave you and always going to keep my promises to you. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who leaves his homeland effectively and says, I'm going to go off to another land and there's going to be some trials ahead of me, but I'm going to do it because I trust God and God is going to credit it to me as righteousness. And I'm then going to bequeath that righteousness to all who are in me for a thousand generations. Jesus is the true and better Sarah who is physically barren, never has biological children, and Jesus never has biological children, in that sense, unable to, doesn't he? He's not even married. And yet has an uncountable progeny and seed that again reverberates for a thousand generations, who miraculously, children of promise, not children of the flesh, but children of the spirit given to him just as they were given to Sarah. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who offers himself up on the altar and then the voice from heaven says, now I know, it just as effectively as, um, as God speaks to Abraham and says, now I know you fear me, because you didn't withhold your son. So in the same way, we can look at the cross and say to uh, God, we can look at the cross and say, now I know that you truly love me because you didn't withhold your son from me. And Jesus is the, the Isaac who gets offered up. And then of course, the ram in the thicket saying the Lord will provide. Jesus is the true and better Rebecca who believes God and tricks the enemy into doing what he never wanted to do because he was then going to end up giving the blessing to the weak and not the strong. And that's how, that's how Jesus functions in the Gospels. The person who steps in and says, actually, the world works by giving the blessing to the strong boy, but I'm going to give the blessing to the weak boy, and I'm going to outmaneuver the enemy because he's not even going to see it's coming. Jesus is the true and better Esau in that story as well. This is a weird one to me, but I, I walk with me for a moment. Jesus is the one. Now, obviously, Jesus is the anti-Esau in lots of other ways. But Jesus is the one wearing whose clothes we get to approach and receive the Father and receive a blessing that isn't actually ours by rights because we're dressed up as someone else. It's just such a powerful, there's so many of them. Jesus is the true and better Jacob. And in, again, in all kinds of ways in that story too, he's the true and better Jacob's ladder as well. And he says to Nathaniel, you, you, you think it's amazing? I saw you under the fig tree. I tell you, you see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. I'm, I'm the ladder that stretches from earth to heaven. And you're going to see the angels on me, not just on a, a dream in a ladder. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who obviously interprets dreams and is sold as a slave. and in, for the price of a slave and then imprisoned and then rises and becomes seated at the right hand of the power. And in doing so, takes somebody, you know, takes a, he's got one, one guy on one side and one guy on the other side. And one of them, after, after three days later, you know, three days on the third day, one of them ends up being condemned. The other one ends up being forgiven. As he, in, in, his, in his exaltation, he takes the baker representing bread and the cupbearer representing wine. And he takes them both with him into new life. Jesus is the true and better Judah who pleads with the Pharaoh and says, I know that you rightly want to take my brother as a slave, but I promised my dad that I wouldn't go home unless I took the boy with me. 
So would you please let me stand instead of him? Would you let me be the substitute so that Benjamin can go back to his father? Because I told my father I wouldn't go home to him unless I took my brother with me. Take me as a substitute instead. Kill me and let him, let the boy go. Jesus is the whole point of all of scripture. This is just, there's in the first book and we could just keep going through all the others. Jesus is the point of the story at the very heart of it. And so for all that we might, and I think we should, of course, spend a lot of my life teaching and asking, urging people to respect and honor and validate this book. But at the same time to say, I don't ultimately want to do that in such a way that leads people to replace the person of Jesus with themselves as the point of what this book is trying to do. But instead to say, yeah, the, I don't want to be the person who says, these are the scriptures that testifies about me, and I'm still going to refuse to come to him and have life. I want to be somebody who comes and says, when I read this book, I'm expecting to find the Lord Jesus everywhere. And as we do that, to, to trust that God's word coupled with his spirit will bring new life to us and enable us to see the Bible as what it truly is, divine revelation given to point us to the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray?